Welcome to the New Books Network. You use this? Sometimes. I thought only beginners did. I must say. All right, I'll ask you. What do you suspect? Oh, I've forgotten. Where's David Phillip? I don't know. Why? Brandon knows. Does he? Doesn't he? Not that I know. Oh, come now. I don't. Why don't you ask Brandon? I have. But he's too busy maneuvering the other two points of the triangle. What for, Philip? Just what is Brandon trying to do with Janet and Kenneth? <laughs> What's the matter? What are you laughing about? Nothing. What is. What am, what am I so far off the track? There's nothing going on at all, Rupert. usually allergic to the truth tonight, Philip. That's the second time you haven't told me. Thanks. When was the first? When you said you'd never strangle a chicken. Hi, everybody. I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. So welcome back to 15 Minute Fanatics. You probably know the premise of the show. It's that Mike and I watch movies separately and talk about them for the first time. Today we're doing a movie we've each seen a hundred times. We both watch it again because we have never discussed it before, have we, Mike? Ever. Never. Okay. What movie are we doing today, Mike? Rope. We're doing Rope. 1948, obviously directed by Alfred Hitchcock, based on the play by Arthur Hamilton, with the screenplay by Hume Cronin, which is an interesting thing, and Arthur Lawrence. Now, uh, let's start with a couple things. We know this movie is famous for being Hitchcock's first color movie, mm-hmm. but it's also famous for the gimmick, right? Like the 10 minute takes and, you know, the way they had to change the film reels and he had to move the walls in and out. So there's a lot about that gimmick that makes us grin. You may have remembered that a couple of years ago, Sam Mendes made this film 1917. Did you see this movie? I did. Yeah. So it was the same. It was a one take gimmick. Right. And. That, I think, was a little bit more irritating than this because it kept drawing attention to itself. I found that tremendously distracting. I think that it's very difficult to pull off that kind of movie, especially if you're going to have scenes alone. Uh, And I I just I didn't I didn't find it as enjoyable. Me neither. But I will say that you have not seen Boiling Point, I don't think yet. No. Boiling Point is a one take movie, and that is the best one take movie ever. We have to do that for the pod. So, you know, Hitchcock, I think, taught the folks who made Boiling Point, how to do it. This movie gets a lot of bad press or it gets a lot of lukewarm press. Like it's it's put kind of like in the middle Hitchcock range, right? And I think that's fair, right? It's not Rear Window, it's not Vertigo, it's not Psycho. Um, there are people we like, like Roger Ebert, David Thompson, who think this movie's kind of a disaster. But I don't think it's a disaster. I don't know if it's top shelf Hitchcock, but it's certainly interesting. I mean, I could understand what they don't like about it in a sense, which is that it is literally a melodrama. So in in its structure and its form, it's a melodrama. It's an hour and 20 minutes. It's something kind of like a very special episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents rather rather than a feature film. But it was really a chance for him to show off some of the formal aspects of directing that he enjoyed and really be a be a character in the room without being a character in the room, which is, of course, what he's actually famous for. 
And of course, it's got those great bits about, I love those great Hitchcock touches, like moving this, moving the books from the table to the sideboard. And everybody's having those conversations in the background. And all you're doing is looking to see what the housekeeper is doing. That's like a great Hitchcock touch. How insufferable everybody is, you know, how 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 tight can you draw the elastic band, you know, making a making a suspenseful uh, and gripping movie out of ungripping people. That's that's the Hitchcock signature. Well, let's talk about the people in this, because one of the complaints people have about this film is, is there are people that say that Jimmy Stewart is really miscast as Rupert, the professor. What's your take on that? No, I, I think Jimmy Stewart is the salvation of this movie, because I, I think he even when he is being melodramatic, it's it's uncharacteristic for him. So I think that they that they drew in. Uh, an actor who's known for that one big scene. It's kind of like his Mr. Smith goes to Washington moment it when is. he finally confronts them. But can you see him can you see him spouting those theories back at prep school? I don't know. I mean, can I can you see anybody spouting those theories? I don't know. He's 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 a well-dressed uh interesting uh early 20th century guy. He he makes as much sense as anybody else. All right, so we talked about some complaints we people have about this, but in part one, traditionally, as you know, Mike, we always talk about an overall take on the movie, like what we liked about it overall. I like to think of it as introductory Hitchcock rather than middle shelf Hitchcock. It's kind of the film where if somebody was not necessarily into Hitchcock films or uh, older movies, if they didn't enjoy Technicolor, like I enjoy Technicolor, this might be the movie that you want them to watch. It's got a very simple plot. It's got a simple location. It's got simple characters. You're you're in and out in an hour and 20 minutes. And so from that point of view, uh, it's it's almost like a long television episode, except that the format didn't exist. So they did it in the format that they had. But there, there's essentially nothing wrong with it. I mean, it's not like they wrote this or adapted it from something else specifically for this movie. It's a staging of this play in an apartment which was a revolutionary idea at the time, you know, no pun intended because they have to cycle the the camera all the way around. But uh, if you're looking for gripping psychological drama, what you should do is read Crime and Punishment. But if you're looking to be entertained for 100 minutes, you should just, you know, you should just watch Rope. It certainly obeys the Aristotelian unities. All of them. <laughs> all of them, right? Which is kind of interesting as well. So let's talk about the actual the actual people in it and the, and the killers. So this movie is very, very famous for having a, in every frame, you know, the thing you weren't allowed to talk about, which is that Brandon and Philip are this couple. And it begins kind of with the, with the murder. They're in the dark. He goes to put the lights on. You know, um, Philip says, don't, not yet. Just sit here a minute. They smoke the cigarettes. There's this whole sexualization of the murder of David, that, that that you don't have to have a podcast to know this is going on. It's it's in every frame, and that gets carried out there. But it's interesting. I think that it's it's that's a real Hitchcock thing. Is that we like Hitchcock because of the way he always has the sex kind of just brimming to the surface, and here it goes over the top. I think he always transfers it into something that you're allowed to talk about, and then right. mocks you because it's the thing you're allowed to talk about. In other words. It, whether whether it's heterosexual or otherwise, he transfers it into murder or something macabre. And then for some reason, you're allowed to talk about the macabre. And then he's both having you on and following you down where you're going. And I, I think I think that there are a lot of movies that people bring sex to and it's not really there. This is not one of them. It's it's a hundred percent there. It's there in the source material, and it's certainly there in the treatment. I like what you said about how he he makes you think about these things and makes fun of you for thinking them. Because of course, my favorite Hitchcock, not my favorite thing, but I love. You've heard me go on about this before. The psychiatrist at the end of Psycho. 
when he starts explaining about what happened with Norman and the guy says, was he a transvestite? And he's smoking a cigarette. Like, not exactly. And he has that diagnosis of Norman, which is kind of like the Cliff Notes version of Psycho. But we know that that's not really what Psycho is about. No, and it's and it's also, I mean, it's it's an unnecessary scene and it just feels like it drags on forever. And so I feel like with Hitchcock, when you when you have the elements that he's trying to discuss or explore by themselves, it's somehow it's it's inappropriate to talk about. And then when you when you have just just the murder or the macabre element, it's also it's it's equally, I don't know, uncouth to talk about by itself, but somehow the mixture together is is allows him to get away with both at the same time. Well, I think that Rupert's speech at the end about, you know, I can't believe you've taken my ideas, you twisted them, and you think you're a Superman and all these things. That's a, There's a little bit of the psychiatrist from Psycho in there as well, because, you know, the movie would have you think that they kill this guy to test out their theory of superiority. But of course, you can't help seeing that it's that the whole thing is a metaphor for what it's like to be Brandon and Philip, right? The emotions we have for each other, they're like a crime. It's like we're treated like criminals. And at the end, despite all the pressure, we just want to come out and tell everybody the truth. And of course, if you know, so the whole thing about Superman, that's really like kind of like a shellacking of acceptable motive. Sure. But as you as you correctly said, what you can see in both explanations, both in Psycho and in this film, that it's something sort of uh, shoveled off to the end of the movie, right? Because what, like, if if you ask really what the movie's about, it's about don't look at that table. That's really what it's about, and it right, and it doesn't it doesn't work unless there's a unless there's a table and you're not allowed to look at it. Which I think which I think ultimately is the whole point. Because again, you you can get away with things if you're talking about two things at the same time that you couldn't get away with if you were talking about either. Right. Let's kill David and hide him down the street. Doesn't work. Doesn't work, right? Because of course that that's also with their with with Brandon's characters that he's got to be a show off. That's why he thinks of the idea to have everybody to serve dinner on it and move the books and stuff like that. But yeah, you're right. Tie it's the a, books up with the rope. Right, exactly. Right. It's an ordinary. No, we'll leave it out here. It's an ordinary piece of household rope. What he's actually like is Hitchcock, because Hitchcock likes those ideas just as much as the viewer. And so that's that's really what it's an exploration in ultimately is is art, right? It's like it's like Nabokov. Nabokov has certain themes that he comes back to all the time, but really it's about the artistic consciousness. And so you you wouldn't have Brandon be a boring killer. He's got to be an interesting artistic killer. Right. And and of course, the way you tell the story is what's interesting, right? Nabokov has a great story called The Vane Sisters. You ever read The Vane Sisters? Yes. It's about it's about this guy trying to communicate with the dead. And the last paragraph seems like it's nonsense. But if you read the first letter of each word, it spells out the message from beyond. It's an acrostic. Yeah. 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 It's great. So that's the same kind of thing is that, yes, Brandon is absolutely like Hitchcock, delighting in knowing something about the audience, right? Because he is an audience too. So does Hitchcock. And Hitchcock famously said, someone said to him once, what was your goal as a director and he said to put the audience through it and, and, exactly- and i mean it it, yeah. it works in exactly the same format because of course when the audience has caught up to you the show's over Hi, welcome back. In part two, we like to talk about our favorite moments or things that stuck out to us this time that we think reflect the film as a whole or one of the the things we like about it. So Mike, you can go first. What's yours? Well, of course, this is also Hitchcock making fun of us, but there's a scene when Kenneth and Janet actually do put the the mood music on and they're talking and they've been set up by Brandon to be in the same party at the same time so that they can get back together because they've arbitrarily selected whether they will kill Kenneth or whether they will kill David. 
they've decided to kill David, which means Kenneth can have a better life. So they're trying to use the party to set them up to get back together because they've just had this breakup. Um, and they have the classic scene, which is where the young people come to understand each other. And it's like, well, we, you, I just didn't understand you at the time. No, you didn't understand me, but that's okay. And they part as friends. But of course, having seen this movie before, you the implication is that they actually will get back together, that they have this understanding. They're going to bond over David dying. And so it actually works. And so this is, this is just 100% classic Hitchcock getting to have his cake and eat it. Because he has the scene, it works like it does in every other movie. It actually is a, a somewhat sentimental, or at least a scene with sentiment. The music works the way it's supposed to, even though Brandon tells them to put it on. Then they catch themselves. We as the audience members catch ourselves. And Hitchcock is saying that exactly like a dish of pate or like a dessert on top of this body, I can do this scene anytime I want and you will eat it. And that's that's just, it's it's him just showing off but he shows off like brandon and in fact he shows you a show off and then decides to be the show off and it still works and the show off brandon comes in because as you remember when kenneth and janet are speaking like in a doorway to the to the kitchen or to the the foyer and he walks by and says well i think your chances with janet are very good now because we know that he he killed david so that's hitchcock you know that's him gilding the lily (laughs) yeah but he just he he ultimately just can't help himself yes but it but it always works and i the artistic temperament is just to say well what could i get away with could i get away with a little more could i get away with one percent more and i th- that's why i just love the scene which is funny because the hitchcock movies that we go to as as like you know the the absolute top shelf hitchcock movies are ones where he's constantly showing off and the ones that we think are kind of the, like the ones where because every writer you know even homer nods as they say every writer every director has a couple duds right and if you take a movie like um you know the trouble with harry or under capricorn or topaz right, that he doesn't show off in those at all those are like those are very straight done but if you look at the other end you have north by northwest which is just an excuse for him to show off for two hours hours foreign correspondent yeah exactly right which we've done an episode on because we talked about the plane crash right showing off with that plane crash and the windmills and everything what was your moment so my moment is when philip's playing the piano i was going to pick the moment with the metronome because i just love that bit with the metronome yeah um but it's when He's playing the piano and he says to Jimmy Stewart, stop playing crime and punishment with me. Now, I think that's great because that's a connection to Leopold and Loeb, of course, which is would call come to mind with the viewers, but also about Raskolnikov. And it's so funny you mentioned crime and punishment before, because as you know, in crime and punishment, Raskolnikov has this idea. There are superior people. I should kill my landlady. She's a rotten person and she doesn't deserve to live. And I'll take that money and I'll donate it. And he does so with the axe. But then, of course, as you remember, her sister walks in. Raskolnikov has to kill the sister too. That's the crime. The first time you read that book, the crime is over in 70 pages. And then the punishment goes on for about 400. And what's interesting about him saying crime and punishment is not just the motive. It's that the question of can these guys be saved? So Raskolnikov, as you know from the novel, keeps fighting and fighting and fighting. And he meets Sonia. And then Sonia like tries, to, I can't believe it was you. And then she makes him read the gospel. And at the very end of the book, he goes out in public, gets on his knees and said, it was I that murdered the landlady. And, and, and then we're told he goes to prison and he kind of like finds God in prison. And he's not, he's kind of like um Jake at the end of Raging Bull. Like he doesn't become this angel or something like that, but he's kind of like, he, he, there's like a chance for him. And I think what's interesting about the movie is that 
when it's over, like you don't get that speck of, of redemption there. Cause Jimmy Stewart says, you're going to be hanged. You're going to be murdered. You're going to be executed for what you've done. And it's just an interesting difference between this and crime and punishment. Although now that we talk about crime and punishment, I guess I, I suppose I can imagine Jimmy Stewart as like that, that one English teacher just pushes it too far. Cause it, it's very easy to go from any of those texts to see how an introverted person could explore or tease out those ideas uh, with, with kids for fun, you know what I mean? Right. And, and then see what they become. And I, I think it's interesting that there's a kind of chiasmic structure where the introvert ultimately stands up for society. And then you have somebody like Brandon, who's utterly sociable, who ends up really to be the true psychopath. Welcome back. So in part three, of course, we always talk about the title or the ending or the key takeaways. I think We've got the title fairly well squared away. So what do you make of the ending? We have been, we have done so many movies with murderers in them and interesting murders. And we've seen many more that we haven't even gotten to yet on the podcast. I read all these books. But when you look at literary or cinematic murders, somebody always points out to you in the movie that the murderer wants to be caught for one of two reasons. They're either incredibly guilty or they're they're incredibly egotistical, like they want to show off, or they're each one side of that, right? So Philip wants to get caught because he's incredibly guilty. He can't sustain it. I never strangled a chicken in my life. And then you have Brandon who who wants to be found out, even if you even if you take away the subtext of the of the sexuality, he wants to be found out because he wants Rupert to to approve of him. He wants to be acknowledged by him. And he is the smartest kid in the class. But but what if I don't get a grade to prove that to me? What if I'm just supposed to know that I'm smart and nobody else can know that about me? And I think that um, there you get both kinds of people in the world. You get people who go around with very, very, you know, feelings of incredible guilt. And you get people who want to be recognized for the geniuses they think they are. Yeah. And I, I guess that the the person or the figure who stands between them, right? The figure who actually changes in this movie is, in fact, Rupert. Because I think that oh, what we true. see is that when he comes into the party, he's very much espousing the same ideas. You know, uh, there you don't want to do too much character psychoanalysis, especially in something like this, because it's a, it, it is a little thin, right? As a play, it's it's mostly spectacle. But you know, your your character in Rupert really seems to be wanting to socially deflect, and he doesn't do what's socially acceptable for him to do until he sees uh, that David's father is starting to get upset. And then he says, did, did you want to go look at the books, right? That people people say, well, it's nice to see you. He says, why? Right. <laughs> and so it it kind of seems like that th this little this little thing that he does, this little performance is more of a parlor game to distract people. And at the end, he says, well, but I, I'm ashamed of it. And yeah. so he's, he seems to be the most capable of change because confronted with a body, you know, he my feeling about uh, my feeling about Philip is that he's just afraid to get caught. He's not necessarily full of remorse. He's he's excited and frightened. Brandon uh is excited and not frightened. You know, but it's it's Rupert who confronted with a body has the human reaction, you know, that that you would expect. And yeah. so I I think ultimately, you know, again, he's he becomes the voice of the antisocial one becomes the voice of society that points at them and pronounces judgment over them for for what they've done and for their guilt and also remorse for the things that he said that that came to fruition so many years later thanks for listening everybody we hope you enjoyed our conversation about rope now rope begins with a man being put inside a box 
Next week, we're going to do a movie that ends with a man being put inside a box. So maybe you know what that movie is. Maybe you'll have to wait till Sunday when we put it on Twitter at 15MINFILM. Or you can see what we've been watching where, Mike? Letterbox. And that might give you a clue of what comes next. So this one begins with a man in the box. Next week, ending with a man in the box. We'll see you next time. Bye.